Hello and welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to discuss events in the world over the last week or two. And we're doing it on Thursday the 21st of April, which is the Queen's 90th birthday. So she's been on the throne for 64 years and 72 days. Should she be there? I mean, is that a good thing? Um, I, 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 no, I'm a Republican and I can't get overexcited about this. But I don't, I don't, feel, I don't feel as kind of irritated or frustrated about this in relation to democracy as I have done in the past. So, you know, that might be my republicanism slipping. But this is what I've thought during the course of the day. She is remarkable for her age. She's a year older than my mother. She's a great advert for older women carrying on and doing the work. Having said that, she lives a life of privilege. And even though she works hard, it's not as though it's the average uh, life that the average 90-year-old works. So in some ways, good luck to her. But, you know, you can see how she's doing well on that. The thing that's been utterly galling, though, is the sycophancy. And it just happens every time, you know. So I'm kind of prepared to say, and I can live with them celebrating their birthday, but it's just the endless numbers of commentators who kind of come out and say, isn't she marvellous, isn't it wonderful, aren't we lucky? And even Republicans are sort of saying she's at least better than President Blair or someone like that, so it's quite a neg, you know. So, so she kind of gets past. People then say... We don't really like the look of Charles. He'd interfere too much, but the next generation down will be fine. So it's a, an insult to us all that we're treated as subjects, but I'm not as excited about it as I have been in the past. Yeah, it's interesting with the monarchy that today, kind of rather than representing a kind of check on democracy or a kind of obstacle to it, they sort of more symbolise a sort of general decline in it, you know, in the state of it, really. Actually, the kind of you know, monarchy under Elizabeth has rebranded itself much more as a kind of more symbolic almost kind of therapeutic sort of function that it binds the nation together it gives us a sort of sense of our sovereignty um of course as that kind of sovereignty in meaningful terms has become increasingly eroded that's now become the kind of glue of our culture and you know i don't particularly want to to sneer at that the fact that people have a sort of sense of uh, a symbolic idea of what britain means but actually the arguments that get used in their favor narrow increasingly along the lines of you know it they're able to get past the sort of short term that actually they can they can have a kind of much more expert approach to what the concept of a state is supposed to be which is actually a very technocratic um defense and so actually they're no longer the kind of the obstacles you might have sort of said in a symbolic way of kind of off with their heads and seize control of it but actually, the arguments people use for them are the same ones that they do use to erode democracy elsewhere. So that is the main argument um, that you have at the heart of the European Union, that you have people who are able to step away from their sectarian nationalistic divisions to choose what is right for nations. And they're experts. They're not guided by anything as, as vulgar as elections or having to stand on a popular platform. They can do what's best from a, a technocratic point of view. Um, so it's kind of it's difficult to get angry and outraged about a um, kind of uh, the monarchy in this age. But actually, when you look at um, the way in which they've managed to, to rebrand themselves, you actually have to say that this has come at the expense of democracy. And actually, that the arguments against the monarchy should be also the same ones that we're making for any kind of unelected power that wants to exert itself upon the, upon the state. Actually, anyone who's just willing to say that um, politics needs to be placed beyond the realm of democracy or the people is you know is a really troubling trend and that's actually the thing we need to take up and challenge 
Talking of uh, powers that want to put themselves beyond the people, let's talk about the EU referendum campaign. So this week we've had George Osborne and Michael Gove um, making major declarations. So George Osborne says if we leave the EU, then it could cost £4,300 per household by 2030 uh, in economic losses. And Michael Gove then tried to put the sort of positive case for for leaving and saying you know that those those figures were exaggerated and that you know there was a there's a brave new world for the UK out there to uh, embrace uh, if if only we had the nerve to do it what do we think about this uh, i mean are, are, are we in a sort of politics of fear versus politics of other fear kind of referendum uh, what do we think about these economic arguments so i think that one of the reasons why i'm slightly lackluster in my kind of republican sorry, in relation to the the Queen's birthday, is because I'm so agitated by the anti-democratic arguments that are being put forward in defence of remaining in the EU. It's driving me mad. And I suppose it just... um, I've been on platforms over the years, for example, um, with people who call themselves Republicans and want to get rid of the monarchy and then are the most uh, enthusiastic embracers of the EU. And I suppose it's in that sort of context that you just feel you've got to kind of go for the the jugular on this, in relation to democracy. So because I'm interested in this question, um, predominantly in relation to popular sovereignty and democracy, it's not that I want to be irresponsible about economic development and so on, but it just feels to me that the debates around the economy are a technocratic smokescreen for us having the discussion about taking control of our own destiny and making sure that we have control over what happens. I'm under no illusion that if, as I hope people will do, we vote Brexit, that the British economy will thrive or it won't face challenges. But it will be, nonetheless, a decision that's actively made and one which we're actively able to do something about. I write on local government and it's been fascinating watching a variety of local government NGOs saying we can't leave the EU. What will happen? We get all these grants from the EU which basically makes kind of local councils sound like they're kind of welfare dependents on the EU. They've got no imagination to imagine that we can develop or grow an economy outside. And so I think in that sense, although I don't want to over-compliment the Brexit camp because there's been so many awful arguments used by it, I think Michael Gove does sound as though more compelling as an argument for, you know, look, we can sort this out. You know, we are grown up enough to be able to sort out the economy and we're positive enough and stop saying it's too risky and stop saying all of these negative things and stop trying to blackmail and frighten people with you'll lose all this money. But I wouldn't say it's risk-free to leave, but I think life's not worth living if you don't take risks. Yeah, it's really striking how reluctant anyone is to to be clear on what, the benefits or problems of European membership are, even from within the EU itself. Actually, everyone's a little bit hazy on the figures. Everyone's a little bit hazy about what Europe does and doesn't do from both sides. There's a kind of process of mystification at work that has left um, both its kind of supporters and opponents genuinely confused. You know, people aren't just trying to kind of trick us and con us. It's actually really difficult to work out what these decisions are. A friend of mine described it on Twitter as a little bit like the arguments you make when you're trying to decide whether you're going to go down to the pub or not. You know, it's a kind of, on the one hand, it's comfortable. You know, I'm kind of not that, you know, I want to save a little bit of money. I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't really, it's not, you know, I'd 
might want to go out, but I'm happy where I am. Versus, oh, anything could happen, but you know, anything could happen. There's costs involved. Oh, should he do it? And there was a kind of lack of any attempt to inspire that. But what is really telling is still that, you know, actually what should have been the grounds for a really progressive kind of case for challenging the European Union. You look at what has happened um, across uh, Greece, you know, actually this sudden realisation a lot of people, particularly um, in Southern Europe, are having that actually this whole European Union will come together for the common benefit tends to benefit certain aspects of Europe more than others. Is that there is a real reluctance to... Um, argue for a challenge to the status quo. So Yanis Varoufakis, you know, the kind of great left Marxist, edgy, radical Syriza are going to really challenge the European order, is horrified by the thought that the UK would leave the European Union. Even allow, And not because he's worried about the UK's future, because he knows that the UK is a powerful country that can challenge it, but is worried about the whole edifice of the European Union falling apart. There's a real reluctance to make an argument on behalf of democracy um, from those circles, which I think you know, really lends a kind of stultified air to this whole debate, that, that kind of no one is really willing to back a kind of proper risk and to actually sort of say, actually, there may be costs of us leaving the European Union, but, you know, we can support it, we can challenge it, we can come up with some new ideas. No one is really willing to make that positive case. So you only get left with kind of fear, wild stats... Um, and uh, you know some general vague arguments about I uh, you know the risks of doing stepping into the unknown or what's safe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, this this whole way in which the debate has narrowed down. I mean, it did it as, as well in the Scottish referendum. How how much better or worse off any individual will be uh, as a result of this um, is really really depressing. And I don't think that the 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 Leave side has to actually provide a blueprint for. What will happen afterwards? I think it's it's entirely reasonable to say we'll decide that afterwards. But when we get control back or more control back over our destiny, then we'll decide what happens. And if Europe doesn't want to play ball with us, then we'll just have to take that on the chin and deal with it. But but instead, it 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 comes down to economic arguments. And then, of course, then it's easy to pick holes in each other and say, "Oh, well, that's not credible," or "They won't do this," or whatever. You know, I might not want. Michael Goh's vision of a free trade area from Iceland to Turkey. I might want some other vision of Europe. The point is that it should be for the British people to decide uh, who runs Britain and, and uh, how we relate to the world in general. And you know, I, I certainly don't accept whatever they've cobbled together on that question. I, I just wanted to, to point out, I, I might have done so on the last podcast, but I'm just really minded to really ram, ram home this point that Every time you have an election, things can get thrown in the air. I mean, it's going to make a big difference in America whether Trump wins or whether Hillary Clinton wins. Right, you could sort of say, oh, that's a real bother, isn't it? I mean, you know, Obama's in power now. We've got all these, like, civil servants all set up. The last thing we want is to have sort of some other party come in and, you know, it'll all have to change, won't it? There'll be different economic policies. That's what happens in democracies. What happens is you make decisions where you can't have an exact blueprint for what will happen after whoever gets elected gets in, in a democracy. If you actually have a party that is completely different to the one in power now, it will lead to all sorts of financial and economic arrangements and other kind of arrangements being torn up or being imposed because that's what happens. So what the real arguments are in relation to this referendum is that 
we should actually never, ever vote for anything that will disrupt the status quo. So it really starts to go to the core of a vision for change. As Dave says, you know, having the concept that you might want to change the world you live in is now being completely demonised by those people who say the very nature of imagining a different world and a changed world is disruptive and dangerous and we should never do it. And so even in that context, regardless of what one thinks of the EU, one has to say that the forces of progress are on the outside and the people who say that they're progressive and open-minded on the remain are actually incredibly conservative. Yeah, I mean, I I was really struck by this. The Science Council uh, last week held a a debate on is the EU uh, good for science in the UK? And the people from scientists for the EU were remarkably conservative. Oh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll lose all this money. There'll be no cooperation with, with other European countries. Um, the only way that can happen is through the EU. If we leave, they won't play ball with us anymore. And, you know, and everything will go to rack and ruin. And the... There is no sense of, you know, oh, well, you know, we can roll with this. Um, actually, of course, uh, people, our fellow scientists around Europe want to cooperate with us. We, you know, Britain's one of the leading countries in the world for, for science and you know, lots of Nobel Prize winners and whatever. But no, it's just like the very thought that things might change and uh, things get thrown up in the air and we don't know how they react. I mean, it's, it's there's a kind of Stockholm syndrome going on now where... You can't possibly imagine things being any different, uh, and you kind of always you identify with your captors. You know, it's it's really quite tragic, really. I mean, Gove used the 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 analogy of you know being the hostage, you know, sort of tied up in the back of the car. Um, I, I thought it was quite a funny one, actually. And uh, the, yeah, it's, it's it's the same sort of thinking that you know we can't possibly conceive of the idea of change or risk or anything else. Now, one of the other big stories uh, in Europe. Uh, in the last week or so, has been the decision by Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, to allow the prosecution of a comedian, Jan Bormann, um, to go ahead under this archaic piece of German crim- criminal code, which says that you know if you insult a foreign power, um, then you can be prosecuted. And Bormann did this by reading out a poem on TV, basically ridiculing and lambasting President Erdogan of uh, Turkey. So this seems like a terrible attack on free speech. What do we think about that? So it's being argued that President Erdogan has has asked or demanded this of of Angela Merkel and because she's uh, very keen to solve the problem of the the refugee crisis and Turkey are very uh, key to that and they've just recently done a deal, that she's bowed down to that demand and sacrifice kind of free speech in Germany and and, and, and one of their own citizens by using this ridiculous law. And that might or might not be true. I I mean, I I don't know why she's she's done it, but obviously I'd like to remind us that uh, the idea of locking up people for telling bad jokes, which we might sort of want to say, and a lot of people have tried to say, yes, it's disgraceful and it's disgusting because Turkey do lock up people for satire and, and there's I think there's hundreds of people in jail for who are artists and poets and things because they've um, um, made fun of or satirised or written uh, derogatory comments about about the, uh, uh, the head of state of Turkey. That's all true. But it's also true that we 
seem to be less shocked about the fact that in France, for example, they uh, uh, prosecuted and found guilty comedian for his, uh, you know, offensive views post uh, the Charlie Hebdo outrage, all of this kind of thing. So free speech is hardly alive and well the rest of the place. So I don't want to start overly lecturing Turkey about free speech and can you imagine anyone attacking comedy when in fact we live in a very censorious climate where comedians are actually forced to walk on eggshells and scared that if they say the wrong thing they might well get locked up and in fact there's a a big uh, famous case in Canada at the moment of just that very thing. The final just bit on the Europe point though on this is that there is this sort of we will allow Turkey to join the EU if they kind of raise themselves up to the standards of European democracy point. There's a kind of like a toing and froing about whether Turkey should or shouldn't be in the EU. It's not whether I think that should they or shouldn't they be in the EU, but it's the tone in which the Eurocrats discuss the basis on which they should be allowed in. So even some of the pro-EU people who are criticising Merkel say, until Turkey show that they are a civilised nation, we should not let them in. And it's precisely that tone that drives me mad about the EU in terms of it. Who the hell do they think they are, right? Uh, Treating other countries with contempt is also something to be nervous about in this. Yeah, also hilarious in the context of um, the ongoing EU debate where it is very much the, you know, if we leave the EU, we'll be stuck alone on a small island with bad Tories who just want to tear up human rights, left, right and centre. And we need the civilising force of the Europeans um, with their great respect for human rights um, to, to, you know, to protect us, really. So, you know, God, God forbid we should uh, um, uh, be, be left with the risk of democracy having to decide these questions at home. And, you know, it was kind of great that, you know, the Spectator have come out and, you know, done an insult Erdogan competition. And, you know, that has gotten international attention around the world. The people who have really driven forward on this story are the scurrilous, terrible, hackish British free press who know how to strike blows against pompous politicians and to to satirise and to really kind of strike strike a blow against these things. And actually that has counteracted and shown a bit of... Backbone, and it's sort of striking. There is a you know, ongoing argument that's been going on around John Whittingdale, the kind of culture secretary, and it's a bizarre situation where you know he was in a relationship with a woman who was a cool girl, and because he you know was against regulation of the press, reasonably enough, the press decided not to attack him for something that actually was not any kind of clear hypocrisy. He wasn't married, wasn't known for family values, known as a kind of roguish libertarian character. Hacked off the people who want press regulation to stop unwarranted intrusions into private life have been calling for an intrusion into his private life. That intrusion into the private life has now happened. Most people, it seems, aren't terribly bothered because, again, he's not married. He's not a family values politician. And there's a kind of curious mixture of uh, uh, views going on around it. And you just want to remind yourself that this is actually the advantages of a free press. That actually they are, you know, sort of willing to sit there and be... Yeah, irreverence, crude, vicious. And again, it reminds you in that spirit of Charlie Hebdo, you know, there was that great Private Eye uh, magazine cover right after the attacks when all the world leaders came together to celebrate their commitment to values of free speech. And Private Eye stuck that with a caption of Je suis charlatan. And, you know, to reveal that actually none of these people have any great commitment to, to free speech. And that's one of the kind of great importances and freedoms of free speech and freedom of the press which is actually a value that really stands beyond pretty much any government or state or supranational organisation. 
I think both the Brexit campaign and this, this, the, the free speech stuff, whether it's the safe spaces or Leveson or whatever, yeah, there is real potential there for us to be reminded of the importance of democracy and, and, and how it works. And it's not a, a, cl- a clinical kind of tick in a box every five years, but it's a messy, boisterous process that goes on where we jostle with one another about uh, how society should be taken forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully things like the Spectator uh, stuff, like Spike's Free Speech Now campaign and the campus censorship campaigns, things like that, you know, will just remind us, you know, and put into perspective the the importance of, of being able to say what you think and let you know the court of public opinion decide on these things and the necessity of persuading your fellow citizens about your point of view and how central that is. Finally, final uh, story just to pick up on quickly is something that seems to me almost surreal is the decision by Mars, the mood the mood manufacturer, the food manufacturer, to um, to dis- to declare that some of its pasta sauces should only be consumed occasionally. So basically what Mars is saying is, yes, our products are safe, but some of them are more safe than others, and maybe you want to avoid them. Now, it shows the kind of desperation of, and the actual internalisation by the food companies of some of these public health messages. They're so desperate to be seen to be squeaky clean and responsible corporates. But I suppose it also shows just the the extreme pressure that the food industry has been put under, that in desperate attempt to avoid regulation desperate attempt to avoid things like the sugar t- sugar sugary drinks tax which is uh, was announced by the chancellor in his budget they they are getting so much stick for like basically being accused of killing children pretty much explicitly and this is the kind of response where manufacturers of perfectly legal safe products are now having to disavow the stuff they make it's it's a really really bizarre situation what do we think about that well, the one thing I thought was hilarious about it was that when they were reporting on this, they kind of had to say, you know, for a long time, Dolmio has asserted, when's your Dolmio day? And now they've had to come out and say, you're only supposed to have it once a week. And you kind of thought, well, this doesn't sound like the biggest, most egregious lie in advertising history. This product they've been suggesting that you should have once a week. Actually, it turns out it's probably only best to have once a week from a health point of view. It was already, I thought, it was a kind of, it sort of showed that the kind of climate that people could could really feel that actually, you know, they're, they're obviously clearly trying to get in a little bit early on this and to try and guard themselves. And, you know, the idea that, you know, previously if you thought you were having rich Italian pasta sauces every day of the week, that you were living a healthy life, you know, particularly if you're doing it from jars, I think is a little bit patronising. You know, everything about the kind of way in which these products are marketed is actually the fact that these are sort of treats, really. Um, so it's just that it, sort of, it hasn't really felt as if they're attacking a straightforward um, social problem and trying to sort of bring these things under, you know, under control. The, the thing for me is that even if you had Dolmio sauce every day um, with, with pasta, I, I, I don't think it's the greatest threat to one's life myself. And I think it is worth reminding ourselves that this is like... I, I actually was watching a programme last night about um, uh, people in East End of London in the 1920s and 30s just the poverty you know mm. kids you know a seven year old boy with no welfare state looking after his mm. five year old and his three year old brothers and going around living on scraps and all this sort of thing you just sort of think give them a bloody Dolmio sauce every day they'd be like thriving um, so on the one hand I think it's over 
scared and it's daft that the manufacturers feel like almost the need to demonize their own products but it's also true that just nobody eats dolmio sauce yeah. every day that, i mean that's the thing is is that it's not even in the junk food category right i mean this is an italian meal people like it occasionally and it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do the funny thing is is that kind of pasta and sauce is often actually presented as like you know pasta sauce and a bit of olive you know some olives and a bit of salad it's almost like presented like a healthy alternative I think that the, 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 the extent to which we can see that there's utter confusion, not just from food manufacturers, but just that politics can become obsessed with this sort of stuff, is the ridiculous decision by the Labour Party to turn down um, £30,000 sponsorship of, its, of a McDonald's stall at its uh, national conference. And, you know, on the base... I mean, this is a Labour Party, like every political party who needs to accrue financial support and this is just a perfectly reasonable business thing you never stole you pay 30 grand and there's a big fuss about it and what I found interesting is is that the kind of Corbynistas who are arguing it shouldn't they shouldn't have a stall have actually argued it more in the base on the basis of unionized labor or non-unionized labor and working conditions that some people have made some sort of uh, comments about the, the the fact that it's junk food and so on then suddenly there's out of nowhere are all these more like, as one would call them, Blairite Labour MPs, people I'm, you know, like Wes Street and various, loads of them, queuing up, attacking the Corbynistas for hypocrisy and saying, McDonald's food is wonderful. We all go to McDonald's all the time, don't we? You think, like, this world gone mad? Because normally these are the very people who are giving you lectures about public health. In other words, they've all suddenly admitted now, because they want to have a go at the Corbynistas, that going to McDonald's and having burgers and chips and all the rest of it is something that we all do all the time. Lots of people do it, and we shouldn't be snobbish about the food. Which, coming from New Labour, the people who really promoted the attack on food, is a bit rich. But I'm glad to have them as allies, even if it's for entirely hypocritical reasons. Yes, the ful- falafel munching Wes Streeting, yeah. The um and you know, not somebody who's normally that keen on working class tastes. So, you know, when he was deputy leader of uh, Redbridge Council, uh, apparently he there's news reports of him looking very seriously at the idea of banning smoking in parks or at least in playgrounds. So, you know, some things when it, when it plays well to the base, you know, you know, coming across as Mr. Right on working class guy. Yeah, so that, yeah, the, the, as you say, it was, it was this it's an Islington set that's like you know, a bit at the forefront of. And the other fu- the funny thing about it is, of all the like fast food people in the world who have bent over backwards to appeal to those people, it's McDonald's. So they won Sustainable Restaurant of the Year last year because they only use British and. Irish meats. They use orga- um, free-range eggs. They use organic milk. They're, they're so achingly right on that it's not true, and yet still, they, 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 people will flip around and say, "Oh, we can't have them at our conference. That'd be terrible." And so there we go. We've, we've decided that the world is mad, and what we need is more democracy. And where streetings welcome to come around for McDonald's anytime he fancies and have the argument with us. <laughs> In fact, he can do the McDonald's run. It's just up the road, Wes. If, uh, I'll have a um, Big Mac meal, please. Uh, and on that happy note, um, thank you very much, Claire and Dave. If you enjoyed today's podcast and you'd like to listen to some more, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast to hear the other ones and to subscribe to our podcast feed. Thank you very much. Thank you.